0: Hello and welcome to Pop Cultural Osmosis. I'm Kyle Diaz.
1: I'm Ryan Harrington.
0: And our favorite today is favorite book that we read before we were 10. So it's kind of a big range. It covers a variety of like children's literature to young adult literature, I guess. Um, Ryan, what's your pick for this?
1: Uh, I'm going with uh, a favorite book from when I was probably about five or six, Harold and the Purple Crayon by Crockett Johnson. I don't know if you've ever actually read it.
0: I have not. I don't think I have. Maybe somebody, you know, maybe I read it when I was a very little kid, but...
1: I, don't. Uh, I mean, the basic premise is that this boy, Harold, is a has, has a purple crayon. And oh, wait, then, does
0: he draw on the walls?
1: Um, well, he whatever he draws, mm-hmm. like, basically comes into existence. Okay. So, like, um, like, he's walking around or something, and, like... But he doesn't know where he is, so he decides to draw a policeman to ask for directions or something. Mm. Or he, like, I don't know, he draws, like, a moose and a porcupine at one point, And he's like, oh, but they look hungry. Um, and so he draws ten pies. <laughs> and they all eat pie. I, I, I don't really remember the continuity of it, of everything. I just remember it's very...
0: You just like the fun. concept.
1: Yeah, and, like, you know, when you're a kid... You, all you have is your imagination, pretty much.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like a very, you know, it's like a, a literalization of that kind of imaginative power of the of the like small child.
1: Uh. Yeah. Um. And so it actually had a, a lot of books. It became a, a, I guess, a fairly successful uh, successful series, but I have only read Harold and the Purple Crayon, mm-hmm. the first one. Mm-hmm. Uh, And apparently, um, Will Smith's Overbook Entertainment is developing a computer animated film.
0: Interesting. I mean, I feel like that would translate pretty well to film. I could see that. Yeah. Um,
1: Oh, Maurice Sendak was a producer on it.
0: Oh, sad. I mean, it's kind of a Where the Wild Things-esque in terms of, you know, boy's imagination runs wild. Sure, yeah definitely. I do remember this book and I'm looking at the cover right now and I remember this book from when I was a really little kid.
1: I would not be surprised if you asked my mom and she said that I had taken my crayons and colored on things that...
0: (laughs) I I wonder how many many, uh, uh, children have ruined... You know, tabletops and and walls and stuff like that by. <laughs> I'm, <board>. I'm sure. <laughs> oh, I feel like if you leave a kid alone with a bunch of crayons, you kind of asking for it. You know, like <laughs> not really trustworthy creatures with with those kind of a uh, those kind oh, of yeah.
1: things. I do remember I had like a closet full of board games, and for a while, I remember I I woke up past my bedtime and colored on the board game box covers <laughs> i specifically remember i had monopoly junior and i colored mr Moneybags with highlighters
0: see that's the kind of thing that like my parents used to get like a little bit annoyed or especially my babysitters i feel like would get really annoyed with me for doing that kind of thing but i kind of feel like if i had a kid like i would not give a shit if they colored on the Box for Monopoly because like what is it? What is Monopoly good for if not amusing small children in whatever way it can?
1: Right. No. You yeah. Know? I don't think my mom really cared. Yeah. Like as wow. long
0: as they, as long as they're being destructive about stuff, I don't care about. I feel like kids need to do that kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. Well, that's a good pick. I, you know, I, I had not remember that uh, that existed, but now that you bring it up, I, I do have some memories of the books. I think that's uh, a it's a good pick. <sighs> So good. I'm I'm going a little bit older. I think it's it's probably a book series that I read, um, very close to when I was not you know nine or ten years old, uh, kind of coming up into like young adult literature or or, or fiction. Um, and it's um, by one of my favorite fantasy authors when I was a kid, who was named Diana Wynne Jones, um, oh. so English author. Did yep. You, did you, what? Hello. Oh yeah, 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 I'm here. Okay, <laughs> you made a noise like it, like yeah. It. Well, I,
1: I, I had an idea, especially when you said series. I had an idea where you're going with it, and then
0: I was wrong. Oh, okay. That's <laughs> <And> <laughs> <Like>, frustrating. <"Damn." laughs> um Diana Wynne Jones was this great. She, she was this uh, kind of. She's like if J.K. Rowling only ever became like moderately famous. She's um, very prolific. She wrote a lot of fantasy books for kids, um, and there were two series in particular that I really liked. One was the Crestomancy series, and one was the Dalemark uh, Quartet. Um, and I liked them both, but I'm going to go with the Dalemark Quartet, which I think I read when I was a little bit younger. Um, it's a it's a fantasy series about this kind of fictional country that's pretty modeled after Britain um, that's engaged in this civil war, and and it, there's there's four books, and in each of the first three books is about a particular character um, learning how to use some form of magic. And then in the last book, um, it kind of throws all the characters into one pot and kind of wraps up the whole storyline in a a pretty satisfying way, actually. Um, And I'm going to go with the first book, which is called Cart and Quitter. And in the story of the book, a quitter is a kind of uh, like a looter or a guitar or something. I Um, see. And it's about uh, a boy who is part of, like, a family traveling band, and he's maybe 11 or or 12 years old, and and, uh, he kind of inherits or finds, I can't exactly remember, he inherits or finds a a guitar that has magical uh, abilities. Um, What I like about this book, looking back, like, what I think attracted me to it when I was a kid is the fact that... um, the magic in this particular series is a lot like the magic in like um much more like the magic in like game of thrones than in lord of the rings where most people don't really think that it exists they live pretty much just normal kind of medieval lives and um you know it's not it's not uh, it's not pervasive it's not everywhere it's it's a very rare event when um these kind of magical events happen um and and there's no kind of like uh, You know, scholar wizard like there is in so many other series, where it's like it's just a skill that like you know, you have to have some inherent ability, and you have to have some training, and then you can just do all this stuff like it's baseball or something. It's like a it's it's truly kind of a. Wild, chaotic, unpredictable force that you you are only occasionally able to tap into for useful purposes, um so at the very end of this book's so like spoiler alert for this young adult novel from like nineteen fifty five um at the end of this book, you know he figures out how to make the guitar into like a you know you know how to tap into the magic inside the guitar, and as at the moment when two of the opposing armies are about to come together for this big bloody battle, he like closes the mountain pass, so like it's like he he like you know reforms the kind of earth and and creates a mountain and, and separates the two armies um and it was like this it was it's the only moment of magic in the whole book like there's no magic 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 last scene of the book magic and it's like awesome magic like super powerful like this is not like a you know the ability to like shoot a fireball out of a staff or whatever like you like built a mountain so it was like you know I don't know. It's, it was it was a uh, it was an appealing idea for me as a kid. I think because it like kind of, you know, it it was it was a nice fantasy that maybe there were these kind of magical forces in the world that you know most people didn't know about, and you just had to kind of stumble upon one, and, and then it would be there, and uh, you know, I don't know. I also was able to identify with the main character quite a lot because his parents made him practice his music and I had to practice my piano every day for half an hour and I hated it when I was a kid. And I was like, this guy also has to practice his <laughs> his quitter. Um, so that's my pick. Um, Diana Wynne Jones, uh, uh, Cart and Quitter, part of the Dale Mark Quartet. Um, she was... Uh, a pretty great author and it holds up like surprisingly well for what's essentially a kid's book I read uh, these books a couple years ago and, and they hold up pretty well um, I think she's actually much better than than Rowling and, I, and I'm not sure and maybe the timing just wasn't right or she never quite hit it where you know she got really famous but she influenced quite a lot of people um, I know Neil Gaiman in particular has said that she was a big influence on him when he was a kid yeah. so you know it's pretty cool anyway that's my pick. More of, a, more of a young adult novel, but I'm 95% sure still I read it before I was uh, 10 years old. Okay, okay.
1: For some reason, I was, I was confident you were going to pick The Golden Compass. I don't know why.
0: I actually did not read The Golden Compass series until I was quite a bit older.
1: Oh, interesting. Like,
0: I didn't find out about it until I was like basically in high school, I think. And I've never really had much connection to the series. I'm also pretty sure that I read uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy before I was 10, but it's not a kid's book. It feels weird to to pick it as your favorite book you read before you were 10.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's just a book.
0: Yeah, it's just a normal book that I happened to read when I was a very small child. <laughs> I also read another book, another fantasy book that was kind of in the running for this that I was thinking about. Um, it's called The Brother's Lionheart, and it's by the same woman who wrote all the Pippi the Longstocking books. I don't know if you ever read Pippi Longstocking. Nope. And it's, it's, it's just a Swedish author and she writes these books about this kind of mischievous uh, like 9 or 10 year old girl with these like bright red pigtails um, and that's what she was really famous for and then she wrote this book called Brothers Lionheart that I read over and over and over again when I was a kid um, which is about these two brothers who live in like Norway but one of them gets really sick and he invents this story for his younger brother about um, like uh the afterlife which is essentially this like fantasy land with like dragons and stuff like that and then um like both kids die separately like one of them dies in a fire and then the other one dies like of illness and then they end up in this afterlife and then they go all through this afterlife and they have all these adventures and they like kill this dragon and then at the very end like they are about to die again and the older brother tells the younger brother another story about, like, a second afterlife, and then they both commit suicide. Whoa. Oh. <laughs> I was like, I read this book when I was significantly older, and I was like, well, that's a weird fucking book. Like, that is a dark storyline for a kid to be reading and for, like, a kid to be doing. And then I went online, and there's, like, in the reception area of the Wikipedia article, there's, like, a section that's, like, the book did receive some criticism, particularly on the issue of death or suicide, and supposedly recommending suicide as a solution to all problems. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm glad that I didn't take this book that seriously when I was a kid.
1: If I, if I were to pick a young adult
0: book, I don't know when I
1: started reading them. Mm. Um, Encyclopedia Brown? I think I was still younger than what young adult is.
0: Yeah. Young Adult, like Encyclopedia Brown is like in that weird space between like a children's book and what I would consider a young adult novel.
1: Yeah, I feel like, I feel like Encyclopedia Brown is like, you read it when you're 10? Yeah. And Young Adult is more like 13?
0: Yeah. I don't know, I, I I really liked reading when I was like one of those like really super nerdy kids who like read everything all the time. Like that was my main form of recreation.
1: Oh, I read a lot as a kid too. As we discussed earlier, like... Some of us went to the library. Some of us.
0: <laughs> I was really bad at the library. <laughs> I never wanted to give the books back to the library. So I have a feeling that, like, for like, you and I probably advanced like faster along the. I, have, I don't have a good sense of what ages read what books. If that makes sense.
1: Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think. Because, like, too. when
0: I was like seven or eight years old, I was reading books that were like considerably beyond what other people in my classes and stuff were reading. Like, I think I read Jurassic Park when I was like eleven. Oh, yeah, me too. Yeah. I just like, understand half of it. And that's like an adult book. So, like, uh, you know, Encyclopedia. But, I think, I feel like I was done with Encyclopedia Brown by like age seven or eight, but I think they're actually designed for like 10 or 11 year olds. But, like, on a continuum, I would consider like, you know, there's like a children's book, like the Crayon book on one end, and like Encyclopedia Brown, and then maybe like Animorphs, and then at the top, like, you know, Harry Potter or something, like young the start of young adult fiction. Uh, I
1: would put Animorphs on the same level as Encyclopedia Brown.
0: You think so? Isn't yeah. I mean, like there's violence it, it, and death pl- and stuff in Animorphs, but I guess they're just as easy to read.
1: Part of the problem is Encyclopedia Brown is also, like, f- 30 or 40 years older than Animorphs. That's
0: true. That's true. I also read a lot of uh, Gary Paulson books when I was a kid.
1: I, I did. I did think you might. Have, you might pick Hatchet.
0: I thought about Hatchet. I thought about Hatchet a lot because I really liked Hatchet, and actually, there's a couple books in that series, and I really liked all the books in that series. Um, and I also really liked books by this guy Bruce Coville, who wrote uh, "Aliens Ate My Homework," and um, he wrote he had this whole "My Teacher's an Alien" series.
1: Oh, I think I, I think I know that series. Um, were, were all of them like?
0: Like these green scaly dudes. Like it like they all get um and there were four of them. My teacher's an Alien, My Teacher Fried My Brains, My Teacher Glows in the Dark, and My Teacher Flunked the Planet. I love the shit out of those books.
1: Oh, no, I know I know this series, but I was thinking of a different series. Um There's a series of books where all of the titles are are Oh no. Oh, shit, what was it? It's like it's not my teacher's alien. it would have been like vampires don't drink lemonade or like Mm. like zombies don't wear tie i don't know that's the only one i vampires don't drink lemonade is the only one i can i actually remember now Mm -hmm. what what series am i don't oh maybe it's polka dots vampires don't wear polka dots bailey school kids
0: i did not read this series
1: yeah, this is what I was...
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, this is the... the. My teachers and alien books are pretty good. Actually, now that I look at it, this Bruce Colville guy, he wrote a lot of stuff I read when I was a kid. He wrote a series no. of books about the this, like, magic shop that sells these, like, uh, dangerous and exciting artifacts. My favorite one there was Jeremy Thatcher, Dragon Hatcher, about this kid who accidentally buys a egg that hatches into a dragon from this magic oh, shop. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, I know that book. And then he also wrote the Aliens Ate My Homework series, which is a quartet with Aliens in My Homework, I Left My Sneakers in Dimension X, The Search for Snout, and Aliens Stole My Body, which I don't think I actually read this one. I think I stopped with The Search for Snout. Also read a lot of Boxcar Children.
1: Um, I did not read a lot of Boxcar Children. I remember...
0: Okay, I think my mom like, signed us up for some kind of club where you got deliveries of box, like two Boxcar Children books a month or something like that.
1: I remember my grandparents had a bunch of them, I think, from, like, when my aunt was growing up. Mm. Yeah, they're quite um, old. On a bookshelf in, like, her old room where I would sleep when I stayed over. Mm-hmm. So I just... I remember looking at them. I never read them, because I was like, eh, fox car children, whatever. I mean,
0: honestly, they're, like, pretty boring.
1: <laughs> what is... Yeah, what is the main, like, uh, plot-driving...
0: Well, there's these four children, and I guess they don't have any parents. Maybe they're, like, orphans or something. Okay, yeah. And they run away from home, and they live in the woods in a abandoned train car. Uh, it's very kind of depression-esque, I guess. And I feel like I don't even really remember the plot of the first one. The oldest kid, like, gets a job as, like, an assistant... Uh, or something. And yeah, he's like, he's like, he's always like out. Like a, he's like the man that has like out or something. And then the younger kids are always getting into like trouble. Do they have a dog? Like a terrier? Um, that they got from somewhere. Um, I feel like, I, I feel like they do have some family. Like they have like a grandfather or something. But they still live in this thing in the woods. Remember they... Oh, at the end of the first book, they tow the boxcar to, like, the grandfather's backyard. So, like, then they just live in the house with the grandfather, and sometimes they live in the boxcar outside. But then I have no idea what the rest of the series is about. Oh, it says here on Wikipedia. After the first novel, the children become amateur sleuths. They stumble across a mystery no matter where they are on vacation or in their own backyard... They usually solve the mystery with very little adult intervention. So I guess it's like kind of like a younger, less violent Hardy Boys at that point, I guess.
1: Okay, yeah, okay, sure.
0: Hardy Boys were like an aggressively poorly written book series. <laughs> <laughs> like,
1: <laughs> like Well, they're also pretty old, right?
0: They're also pretty old.
1: I feel like at that time there wasn't a no, big quality control for children's books just like turn them out <laughs> print them sell them
0: <laughs> yeah I do remember this also I'm looking at the like the, 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 for, the books are like really bad like they're the kind of books that you can't read as an adult because like they're stylistically so poor um but I also remember that, like, I wasn't allowed to read the early ones at my parents' house. I had to go over to my grandparents' house to read the early ones, and it's because the early ones are super fucking racist. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh wow, well, I didn't realize it started in 1927.
0: Yeah, here's a here's a line from Wikipedia: African Americans are the targets of much racism, being depicted as unintelligent, lazy, and superstitious. Bumpkin rescuers at best, and secretive and conspiratorial villains at worst. Um, uh, In Footprints Under the Window, Chinese American men are portrayed as effeminate threats to both national security and white heteromasculinity. Native Americans receive mixed treatments, those living within the continental United States portrayed as members of once noble tribes, while those living outside the United States is being portrayed as uneducated easily manipulated or semi-savage so yeah i feel like at some point that started to change well the hardy boys and and uh, nancy drew and tom swift and boxcar children and animorphs are, are all series that were like you know created by someone maybe they wrote the first few and then it was handed off to like a series of ghost writers who just tried to mimic the style as much as possible and i think even as a kid i could see that was kind of bullshit
1: Oh yeah. I mean, like I read Goosebumps as a kid and was just like whatever. Yeah. Done. Next one. <laughs> um although I did also read a lot of uh Beverly Cleary books.
0: Hmm. I never I read um Mice and the Motorcycle maybe. Mouse in the Motorcycle. Is that a Beverly mm, Cleary book? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So. Yeah. But I don't really remember much about it.
1: No, I read all of the ones with uh, uh, Henry Higgins, mm. and then uh, Beatrice and Ramona. Uh,
0: I did not those, read those kids. Yeah.
1: And then oh, and then we actually did also have to read "Dear Mr. Henshaw" for school once, but I did not like that book.
0: I read, you know, I'm looking at this list here. And I believe that I read this sequel to Dear Mr. Henshaw, which is called Strider, but not actually the original. So, like, I came into this guy's, like, story at a strange place. I liked this book. It was about a kid who finds a dog and, like, takes care of it and, like, becomes a runner because he has a dog and then, like, gets on the track team and he gets, like, a crush on, like, a girl... who doesn't, you know, he can't figure out whether she has a crush on him back and stuff. It it spoke to me as, like, a 13-year-old or whatever.
1: See, looking back, like, Dear Mr. Henneshaw is about, like, the kid's, like, parents divorce, and he has to move and go to a new school. Mm. And so, like, he spends, like, he basically writes these, like, journal entry letters to this author who, like, never responds to him.
0: Oh. And...
1: And so I felt like when I read it, I felt like this is ridiculous. This kid is just complaining about his shitty life to this guy who is not going to answer him and or is not even reading these letters. Like (laughs) it'd be like someone stole the lunch money at school today and I'm upset about
0: it. Like, why are you writing this author about this? (laughs) But I mean, (laughs) see, by Strider, he's moved. I think he's taken the author's advice and gotten a diary or something because they're all diary entries. I would be fucking annoyed as shit if I was an author and uh, I just got these uh, stupid, uh, you know, five times a week letters from this kid telling me about his stupid life and all the stupid stuff that's happening to him. Uh. (laughs) Though, to be fair, I did write a letter to an author once for school. And he wrote me back and gave me a very nice note. So. I mean,
1: yeah, once for school, sure.
0: I believe I wrote, I believe I wrote it to uh, somebody who went under the pen name of, I think it's Avi or A. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But now that I look at his list of books, I can't remember which one I would have written him to discuss. Um, Maybe Perlue the Bold, which I believe is about a rabbit. That summer I spent working...
1: Um, or I was doing volunteer service at the public library.
0: Uh-huh.
1: It was great. I was, I was like, quote, running the like young adult teen section. Mm-hmm. And so basically I went in the morning at, like whenever I showed up nine or 10, I forget when, mm-hmm. and I would have to shelve like, uh, 20 or so books that got put back from the day before. Mm-hmm. And then I would just sit up there and pretty much no one came up there. So I just hung out and read a ton of books.
0: (laughs) That's awesome. I had a very good relationship with the guy who ran the uh, bookstore in my town. And so I would go there sometimes after school or, like, you know, my mom would maybe be shopping for books or whatever. And he would let me, like, actually read whole books (laughs) and not buy them. I read, like, a whole Animorph books in the back, like, on the little bench or whatever. And it was totally in his right to do so, he was like a, a savvy businessman because every time I made my mom take me to the bookstore, my mom would walk out with like forty dollars worth of books. You know, <laughs> <So they> got, <laughs> the, the only thing you had to do to get those forty bucks was let this like you know geeky four-eyed kid sit in the back and and uh, read just read the stuff. like
1: the five ninety-five exactly paperback trash exactly. novel. Not
0: even man, animorph books. I feel like were like two dollars
1: well maybe from like the scholastic book order yeah maybe god I loved those things they came on like the thinnest tissue paper thinnest paper
0: you had to like be so careful (laughs) 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 I totally remember that like, that paper, like, you, you would, like, look through, like, from books by, like, that you knew or that you liked the, like, descriptions of, and then you would have to go on the back and, like, tally them up. You know, I want, like, this one. Yeah, you cut one, out, like, the
1: one. one strip at the end mm-hmm. that was, like, the order form, mm-hmm. and then you had your mom's check paper to it.
0: I did also really like whenever the book fair came to school.
1: Oh, yeah, the book fair was great.
0: Because, like, you had no warning. It was, like, one day you just went to the library and, like, oh, holy shit, there's books everywhere. <laughs> like the carnival of books (laughs) anyway this kind of turned into a tour of all of our uh, favorite books from when we were kids so I guess they're all our favorites except for The Giver which still sucks (laughs) yeah (laughs) but uh we should probably move on (laughs) I'm Tony Stark I
1: build neat stuff I got a great girl and occasionally save the world So why can't I sleep?
0: The Mandarin must be stopped. You don't know who I am. You'll never see me coming. So, Iron Man 3. Before I say anything, tell me what you thought.
1: I liked it. I liked it a lot. Um, it was, I thought, way more fun and probably more memorable than Iron Man 2, seeing as how I don't really remember anything
0: from Iron Man 2. Mm -hmm. I I really love the shit out of this movie. I thought it was awesome. Um, I I, I think I would put it above pretty much any other film in the Marvel cinematic universe except Avengers. I think it's better than both of the Iron Mans that came before. I think it's better than all of the other ancillary, uh,
1: you mean just related to this whole Avengers, yeah, exactly franchise, exactly. Like, um, but not. In a, but how does it stack up, like, to X Men and or Spider Man?
0: Um, I would put it on the same level as maybe Spider Man Two or X Men Two. Okay, up there with the cream of the crop in terms of uh, in terms of superhero movies. Um, y- you know, I-, I think it's interesting. I was, I was. Uh, Going into this movie, the only the you know it's the first of the Marvels kind of like Phase Two is what they've been calling it, um, the post Avengers uh, films, and and I didn't really appreciate or, or didn't anticipate how deeply they were going to kind of be interweaving these things together. Um, the, the events of the Avengers played into the film a lot more than I expected. You know, obviously there's there's this whole kind of. Um, you know, his whole kind of, uh, PTSD thing. Um, I thought
1: that was a really well done way to kind of, uh, bring the character back down from exactly saving the universe to something a little less grandiose Mm -hmm. because oftentimes you run into this situation where you build up a a character, like the arc builds up the character overcoming the villain. And then the next season it just, he has to do something even bigger than that and it gets ridiculous after a couple times
0: yeah and I thought it was a much better way to kind of break the main character in terms of like you know you have this character who's essentially like a superhuman um, just from a character standpoint like the origin story stuff is done he's got the arc reactor in his chest he's you know gone from being a selfish playboy to being this like uh you know heroic figure and, and you now you need a, a, a character arc for them to go on again and like you know Dark Knight Rises went the route of like totally breaking down Bruce uh, Wayne into like nothingness. Like it broke his back. He went and he's in a pit somewhere. Like it really kind of like stomped him into the ground. I thought this was like a little bit of a lighter touch where it's like he's not broken. He's just damaged, and he has to fight against himself. But he's still the same character that you you know know and like. I-, I guess we should say here that I think it's going to be really tough to talk about this film without going pretty deep into some aspects of the plot that might better be left as a surprise um so if you're listening i think you should really watch the movie before you know before you listen to this because there is a twist about halfway through the film that i think is um significant it's significant and it was remarkably well uh disguised uh like i had not read anything that anticipated this before um the movie came out, and I think it worked really super well. Wait, and so are we
1: still going to dance around it, or do you, no, or do you uh, want to? No, I think
0: it? we should just say it. So, you know, turn, if you haven't turned off the podcast yet, then you deserve what you're going to get. But um, basically, the, it turns out that the Mandarin, who's been built up in all of the kind of pre promotional stuff and inside the film, um, is viewed by the other characters in the film as the main villain, it turns out to be an actor. Um, yeah, there who's were been even additions to mm-hmm. him
1: in the second film.
0: Mm-hmm. You're right. There were. Um, yeah, you know, he, he, turn, he turns out to be an actor, basically, who's been hired to kind of uh, n- be a distraction from from the main kind of scheme that's actually going on, and and he's kind of this conglomeration. I, I really like the fact that he's kind of a conglomeration of like everything that like white America really fears. He's like vaguely Middle Eastern, but he's got a name that's like more kind of maybe you know Chinese or, or Asian, yeah. and he you know talks in this funny accent and all of his videos have all kinds of random kind of uh uh you know touchstones like he's like a mishmash of like everything america fears like china and muslims and uh you know all kinds of stuff so i thought that was kind of a a funny little twist um
1: i think they would have been really hard pressed to do the mandarin as he has traditionally been in the comics and what? it not come out
0: doesn't he have a bunch of rings that were given to him by an alien dragon? Like, isn't that, he's a totally ridiculous uh, character in every way.
1: Well, I was just going to say, like, it would have been really hard for them to do it like that and it not seem really racist.
0: Oh, yes, I think that's also true. I think that's also true. And, I mean, and I think that this is a very good example of, um, Marvel has proven itself very adept at both, giving fans of the comic books exactly what they want and not letting themselves be too slavishly uh constrained to exactly canon exactly what's in the comic books so uh, you know this caused a little bit of consternation among the super fans of the marvel universe who were saying you know the mandarin was this great villain and it turns out that he's essentially a a punchline and a misdirection and he's totally ill used in the movie and it's like yeah, i think that's fine i think it's fine i think it worked awesome i think it, you know mm-hmm. the moment when the the mandarin uh is exposed to be the actor was the most surprised i've been in a movie in a long time just because you know, i figured they wouldn't be ballsy enough to try to pull that off um you know i didn't i maybe some people saw it coming i did not see it coming
1: and, I mean, I think there there's enough out there where you don't need to fall back on the Mandarin being Iron Man's arch nemesis. Yeah. There's all sorts of other options.
0: Yeah. I agree. I agree. Um, I saw a really interesting article, I forget, where I read this, that kind of contrasted the way that Iron Man kept this a secret to the way the Star Trek franchise under J.J. J. Abrams has attempted to keep things a secret. It was basically saying, you know... Um, Star Trek, like, you had to read the scripts under armed guard, and people had to go to and from the sets in, like, these formless jumpsuits to disguise their costumes, and, you know, it was, you know, the identity of the main villain was this huge mystery that no one was allowed to know and stuff like that, and, um marvel kind of went the the opposite route they went the like the misdirection route where they kind of went out there like two years ago and were like yeah the villain of iron man 3 is going to be the mandarin and then we cast ben kingsley as a mandarin here's a photo of ben kingsley as the mandarin (laughs) and you know they and then at some point they were like yeah also guy pierce is going to be in this movie as killian what's his name and or something killian uh, Uh, aldrich uh, killian aldrich yeah and uh everybody kind of went oh that's yeah, that's a, little, that's a little strange. I wonder why in a movie when they've got the Mandarin, they also have this relatively minor, uh, you know, villain. But, you know, whatever. Like, you know, it it's fine. Um, you know, Dark Knight managed to have both uh, Two-Face and uh, the Joker. I'm sure that they'll manage to have both Killian and uh, Mandarin in the same movie. Um, well, I, don't,
1: I don't even... Well,
0: actually, now Extremis is kind of big. Yeah, Extremis is kind of big, but... Um, you know, I, I, and, but just by the time the film actually came out, I, it, you know, Marvel had acted the whole time like, you know, this is exactly what's going to happen. I think people went in expecting a fairly conventional depiction of the Mandarin as he appears in the comic books, and that's not what happened at all. And I think, oh, was- yeah, no, you, you
1: see, like, the trailers and mm-hmm. all that stuff.
0: Mm hmm. It was just a, it was just a pretty, pretty brilliant bit of misdirection. Um, and I think it's a, the contrast to the Star Trek franchise. I think was interesting, um, in that for Star Trek, we've known that there's a secret this whole time, and we've all been debating the secret like to the point where like I think everyone just assumes it's Khan. And if it's not con then like no one's interested in even talking about it anymore. But <laughs> we should talk a little bit about Shane Black, who's the writer director of this film. Um, I'm a big fan of of Shane Black's, not from his. Uh, like 80s and 90s career, which I didn't, wasn't around for most of, but mostly from his movie from 2005, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, um, which is kind of the first movie that kind of restarted Robert Downey Jr.'s career after his whole like breakdown jail thing.
1: Yeah, probably.
0: Um and I think it's interesting how vividly Black's voice comes across in Iron Man 3 as well. It's got a lot of the same kind of trappings as kiss, kiss, bang, bang. You know, there's a, a kind of a voiceover that's a little bit self-contradictory and very conversational in the beginning where he's like, oh, no, yeah, I messed up. Like, I mean, you know, so I said the wrong thing or something like that. Or I, I forget exactly what he says, but there's it's a very conversational voiceover. It's not your normal kind of portentous um here is the voiceover for the film talking about the stuff that's going to happen um and it's just a super funny movie like the plot you know it's okay it's not the best plot in, in even by superhero standards um but i don't even care because what i like about the movie is the character arcs and the character moments and the fact that it's really funny like there's a lot of really funny moments in this film
1: oh yeah definitely
0: i wonder whether that was like a whedon thing whether you know because like the first iron first couple iron man movies were like fairly ponderous like not you know not in a you know they were very serious about their stories and robert Downey Jr. got some quips in here and there but they they weren't they didn't have the same attitude i would think um I don't know. Maybe I'm not remembering them very well. I haven't seen Iron Man two in a long time. I saw Iron Man one maybe like a year ago.
1: I haven't seen either in quite a while. Yeah, but
0: but maybe Whedon kind of showed that you know you can be funny. You can like treat things a little bit, a little bit lighter tone, um, and still well, have a movie that people like.
1: Uh, as I read in uh, that Vulture article talking about uh, Black taking over. For Favreau. I didn't realize that they made it sound like Iron Man 1 and 2 were both... What was the line on it? It was like thrown together. Oh, why Iron Man 3? Okay. So they said... uh, This article that came out um, on Vulture uh, like two weeks ago, it says the first two Iron Man movies were basically written on the fly.
0: Wow, I didn't know that either. Um...
1: And so, like, especially when I think about 2, it kind of makes sense.
0: Yeah, you know, and, and 2 has a very poor critical reception that I didn't really realize when it came out. Like, I just didn't pay much attention to it when it came out. I have fairly fond memories of it, but I guess the consensus now is that it's not a very good film. I definitely
1: it, did not hate it when I watched it in the theaters, but I, I right now I can tell you I don't remember anything about it, really. Yeah. Um I remember it was like the the car race in Monte Carlo.
0: Mhm. Me the too. Cars bl- blowing and up I remember uh, Mickey Rourke's crazy whip things.
1: Yeah, that's about it. Um so and I th- I think there's a lot more in Iron Man 3 where um when did Iron Man 2 come out like 3 years ago?
0: Yeah, I think it was even longer maybe. Oh, no, 2010.
1: Yeah, okay. So in, in 3 years I think there's going to be a lot more from Iron Man 3 that I I will remember. Yeah. And I think that that's owed a lot to uh, Shane Black writing. I'm sh- well co co writing a, a fairly tight script mm-hmm. and having a, a good sense of what he wants, how he wants to present it.
0: Yeah, I think that's very true. And um, you know, there's a, a surprising amount of uh, kind of visual humor, or like you know physical humor in the film which is always tough in a film where most things are computer generated but um you know kind of like the the hulk moment in avengers there's a couple moments where like i just love his his crappy mark 42 suit that's like obviously not ready but he gets stuck with it for most of the film anyway <laughs> and he you know it gets hit by a truck and then at the end he's like you know the prodigal son returns and i feel like in any other movie that would be like a fuck yeah, look how awesome this suit is moment, but instead it just fucking eats it, like, five feet too early. Like, it does not make it to actually on his body. Um, So I just love that they were able to get that kind of physical humor, but there's all kinds of just funny lines sprinkled through there as well that are maybe even, you know, more directly attributable to Black instead of to his team of SFX, uh, you know, special effects artists. Um, He has a really good... uh, uh like uh eye for like henchmen, like funny henchmen. Like there's all kinds of moments in this film. Like there's a moment I remember where, you know, Danny Jr. he's got just maybe the Iron Man hand on. I think it's when he's breaking into the Mandarins, like compound. And he points to this henchman and the guy's like, Whoa man, I don't even like these guys. These people are weird. I just want to go <laughs> home. And he just like runs away. And it's it's such a funny moment. And any other movie I feel like they would not have bothered to give that guy the time of day but in this movie he becomes like this he has his whole like little you imagine a whole backstory for that dude about how he ran out of money or whatever he joined up with these creepy guys that he doesn't really like and now god damn he's being attacked by fucking Iron Man <laughs> um, and and I think that he also uh Black really handles the uh kid really well which is always hard It yeah um when the kid showed up in the movie I was like man really there's gonna be a little kid in this movie like I, I just expected it to be glowing and annoying and and for me to hate this little kid at the end and I just didn't I thought it was the guy who played him did a great job but also he was written really well and his interactions with Robert Downey Jr. were really great definitely um,
1: well, I did think one of the weirdest uh, parts and in my opinion, probably a misstep was when uh they have Robert Downey Jr. break into the complex, and he he like went all full spy mode,
0: mm-hmm. and like
1: mm-hmm. built like a like a nail gun thing, and like I don't know, like those little flashbang thing. I don't know, like what it's
0: exactly just, they were supposed to be.
1: It just, it just seemed really weird.
0: I kind of liked it just because I think it was important for the character because he has to realize at some point that he is uh, important outside of the suit. Like, it's an important character arc for him. Um, I think they could have gone a little bit cooler with the stuff that he builds. Or spent a little bit more time showing that off. Because it was a little... We couldn't really figure out what he was using for anything.
1: anything I don't know. I mean, I understand that, no, he does need to... He needs to understand that he's iron man Mm -hmm. without the suit but i just i just felt like it was a a weird way to i don't know go about things to get him from having this broken suit to into that complex
0: yeah yeah um i think that's probably true i think the other misstep for me was um there are some admittedly pretty funny scenes with uh roadie who's kind of the whipping boy for the whole movie actually he's He's kind of treated like a joke and an idiot, but um, with Rhodey as the Iron Patriot, like, busting into all these Middle Eastern compounds where they think the Mandarin is supposed to be hiding and, like, you know, semi-liberating or, you know, talking to all these, like, you know, m- m- bunch of, like, you know, Arabic women in burqas and stuff like that. Um, it, it was It was funny, but it was also, like, a little bit broad for the movie. It felt a little bit too, like... Do you get it? This is what America does. Like America goes into these places and acts like an idiot. Also, um, yeah. And it kind of—I think it was mostly just in there to provide some explanation for what Iron Patriot is supposed to be doing. You know, this whole time while uh, Iron, while Tony Stark is chasing down the Mandarin, and in general, I feel like none of these movies have really known what to do with the Iron Patriot, including. The Avengers where his absence it seems to me is pretty conspicuous. Like, where else would War Machine slash Iron Patriot be during that attack on New York? Like, you know, what was he what was he up to <laughs> that he wasn't there? So I feel like the like the the series has never really known what to do with that character.
1: Also I think it's kind of weird that they decided to change War Machine's name to Iron Patriot in this. Um because in in the the comic Marvel universe, Iron Patriot is
0: a different dude, right?
1: It's uh, Norman Osborn's version of like the Iron Man, Captain America.
0: Thing. Oh, like, and, uh, like from Spider Man? Yeah, like, like and, Green Goblin. Yeah. Oh, that's fucking weird. Uh,
1: and so it, and it, he like forms his he, like he originally forms like his own version of the Avengers, and then it basically becomes like a supervillain group and so it's it's an interesting commentary on uh like this sort of capitalistic political military you know state i don't don't know i haven't really followed yeah um those comics but i thought it was i thought it was kind of weird that they decided to to rebrand war machine i mean i understand why it makes sense in the movie like, the what they give. Yeah. It just seems like a weird decision that they they made.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, and, and obviously Marvel um, doesn't own the rights to Spider-Man, even though it's arguably its biggest franchise. I think Sony still owns the rights to Spider-Man. Um, uh, yeah, they do. So I can kind of see why they wouldn't be able to do it. Like, it Spider-Man will probably never be a member of the Avengers, which I actually think is good. Like, I think it's good that the most famous of the... Marvel characters are owned by other people and can't wander into the uh, the Avengers universe. Even the X Men. I think that there's just uh, you know the 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 comic book style of collapsing all these universes down into one is probably not the best. Um, especially when you're talking about having to like you know pay all these actors and have to, <laughs> you know Patrick Stewart and you know. Uh, uh, Halle Berry running around and stuff like that. But, um, I don't know. I think I did think it was pretty funny that no one has any respect for the Iron Patriot name. Or, or actually, I'm sorry. Everybody thinks it's awesome except for Tony Starker, who thinks he's ridiculous. Um, and he really preferred War Machine. Maybe that's a commentary on the fact that Iron Patriot is supposed to be a villain in the canonical version of the comic books. But, um, I thought that was pretty funny. Um, I don't know, I think it's it, it's also interesting to look at Iron Man 3 in the context of uh Marvel's kind of whole phase 2 efforts as they've been calling it like with the the movies between Iron Man uh, between Avengers and Avengers 2 um so as far as I can tell there's going to be four of them it's going to be Iron Man 3 Thor the Dark World which comes out later this year um captain america the winter soldier which comes out next year and guardians of the galaxy which also comes out next year and then avengers 2 um
1: yeah guardians of the galaxy
0: yeah and so it's really interesting to me that like first of all um the events of the avengers are not just kind of shrugged off they're like super important to all the characters in the movie um and people constantly talk about it and stuff like that and you know they everybody knows um Tony Stark is not just because of his exploits from Iron Man. In fact, I feel like his exploits from Iron Man from before the Avengers are kind of forgotten in light of the fact that, like, gods and aliens keep dropping from the sky. (laughs) Um, And I'm really interested to see how they continue to develop that in-universe society in which everything is constantly being uprooted by these powerful forces that most people can't understand, and it seems to me that they're treating it with a great deal of weight and I like that a lot I'm really fascinated to see how that kind of interplay continues to to manifest itself as they go, you know, down the line Um, I think they also did a fairly good job of avoiding the pretty obvious question, which is, once you have the Avengers, why does any one person need to do things on his own? You know what I mean? Like, why can't Iron Man just call up Thor to come help him with the Mandarin? And the uh, explanation here seems to be that this was, like, too small of a thing. You know, it was just some bombings. It wasn't really a superhero-level crisis. And if it hadn't injured Happy, uh, you know, Tony Stark's bodyguard, even Iron Man would not have gotten involved because it was just, you know, it was just too small. Um... And when you're talking about an alien portal opening over Manhattan and spilling thousands of creatures out, you know, a series of eight or ten bombings on mostly military basis does look a little bit too small for all of the Avengers. So, I don't know, I thought they did a very good job sidestepping what would be some obvious questions. And they didn't do what I thought they were going to do, which is just ignore the fact that the Avengers happened and treat it as like, yeah, it's canon, but no one ever really talks about it. It's clear that actually they expect each of these uh, kind of movies to have a big effect on the universe going forward. And I like that a lot.
1: I do too. I think, and I think it'll help, uh, them as a franchise and keeping people
0: going uh, to each en- movie engrossed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because they have to, uh, they want to keep up. Exactly. Exactly. And so, I'm um, it's interesting to look forward ahead then to me to like, for example, Thor, which comes out in November, um, it looks is it really like, coming out in November? Yeah, it does. It's kinda of weird actually. Yeah. Um I, but I guess they have to squeeze them all in before Avengers two. And to that they want Avengers two to come out in twenty fifteen and twenty fourteen's already got two Guardians of the Galaxy and Captain and America. Captain America. So Um It looks like in Thor the way they deal with this is by having most of the stuff take place in Asgard, which obviously yeah. you know so far <laughs> Like, Iron Man and Hulk just can't go to. Nope. So, um, interested to see that, too. I also think that they've done a super good job with talent. Like, Marvel has done a great job with uh, especially their, their writing talent, but especially their directorial talent. So, you know, Shane Black with this film is such a great choice because he writes so well for Robert Downey Jr. He's worked with him before on Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and kind of like, you know... He's got that kind of humor that melds so well with with uh, the character that Robert Downey Jr. plays in most of his movies. Um, I'm really interested to see Thor because it, it's got Alan Taylor as director. He has done many of the uh, kind of most important or most impressive uh, episodes of Game of Thrones. Um, Captain America is being done by Joe and Anthony Russo, who are mostly known for being...
1: Oh, really? Oh, yeah, so I read that.
0: Comedy directors, like, first, yeah. they directed a bunch of episodes of Community and Arrested Development and stuff like that. Um, and then James Gunn for Guardians of the Galaxy, I also think is a really fascinating choice. It's um, like, the director of uh, Slither and, uh, what's the other one? Super. Um, and I just feel like they're not afraid to give these people room to be their own uh, kind of voices, you know? And I think it's paying really really good dividends instead of doing something like um, for example the James Bond series does which is mostly say these are the conventions of a James Bond movie please try to follow them as closely as possible and don't necessarily leave your own kind of stamp on them saying like this is my kind of movie like no like don't make a jokey like an overly jokey James Bond movie don't make an overly cartoonish James Bond movie like sick to the formula Um, they seem to be giving people a lot of freedom to kind of uh, play around with the concept of a superhero movie, and I think it—I don't know—I think it's such a good idea, and I think it's working really well for them. Um, I don't know. I just—I'm—I'm. I'm, we talked about this when we talked about the Avengers last year. But I'm just so incredibly impressed with what they've managed to do with their universe so far, where um, they've done something that I, for one, would have thought was impossible, which is create a relatively coherent relatively high quality um superhero universe on film i'm I'm kind of flabbergasted
1: you know yeah and i i don't know how they're able to balance um as well as they they can people that are so engrossed in this universe and keeping everyone else still interested too
0: mm-hmm yeah, I really, I really agree. Like, they haven't done anything, you know, Mandarin probably comes closest. That was maybe a bit of a risk, but I think it's a risk that paid off really well for them. But they haven't done anything that's made the hardcore fans be like, fuck this shit. I don't like these guys because they ruined my franchise. And they also haven't done anything where, like, no people go and they're like, man, this seems really nerdy and weird.
1: Yeah. They've, they've managed a, to
0: walk that line really well.
1: Uh, pretty much, almost as as well as you could hope them to do.
0: You know, I was thinking about it, and I actually can't think of another series that has as high a level of quality as this across the board with this many films. It's like you look at, like, let's just say Star Wars, which isn't the easy one. <clears throat> Star Wars has, you know, depending on who you ask, two to three excellent films and three uh, bad to horrible films. Um, and, uh, you know, the Star Trek series has certainly had its fair share of clunkers um other superhero franchises have definitely had their share of clunkers there are a lot of batman movies that i think most people would prefer we not talk about a lot of superman movies i think most people prefer we not talk about um a couple of spider-man movies that depending on who you ask were pretty pretty bad um and you know you look at the one two three four five one two three four five six seven movies in this universe that have come out so far i think there's one bad one incredible hulk um maybe two mediocre ones in iron man 2 no maybe only one kind of mediocre one in iron man 2 three pretty good but not great ones in thor captain america i disagree about thor iron man i really i really liked thor and Uh, two great to awesome ones in avengers and iron man 3 i think that's pretty good level of quality across the board
1: um, the closest thing is probably the X-Men franchise, I guess, right?
0: Yeah, I guess. I mean, I haven't seen Origins Wolverine. Um, I think
1: that's that's their weakest link, and that's fine.
0: Ah, you think X-Men's Wolverine is worse than X-Men 3? I hated X-Men 3. I didn't mind it. Okay.
1: I do hope we get to see more of Iron Man's other suits in actual application.
0: Uh, yeah, there were a couple that I... That- you know you saw during that time that I really wanted to know more about but then they were just gone too fast
1: because like it was, it was, it was kind of a nice like throw to fans of the franchise that like look at all of his other suits mm-hmm. I, I just wish you saw what they were actually meant for things yeah. like Hulkbuster or his you know underwater suit or mm-hmm. the outer space stuff mm-hmm. Um. so maybe in Adventures 2 or something
0: Yeah. Well, I think it's interesting that, you know, so far, um, they've definitely got Downey on board for Avengers 2, but Iron Man 4 seems to be pretty up in the air at the moment. Um, Nobody really knows whether that's going to happen and whether Robert Downey Jr. Because if you think about it, like, Avengers 2 is going to come out in 2015, which means that's pretty much his 10-year anniversary with the franchise. And it's, you know, he's kind of said in interviews and stuff that he's not really sure if he wants to commit another... You know, two-year cycle of his life to just being Tony Stark some more. Iron Man was 2005? What? Yeah, 2005. What? That's
1: 2005 or 2006, right? Oh, I'm
0: sorry. No, it much more recent than I thought.
1: Yeah, I was like, no way. We were freshmen when that came out.
0: Yeah. Anyway, he's he's been with the franchise for a while, and he's not sure if he's going to want to return. Um,
1: no, certainly. I mean. It's That's a long time to be doing.
0: Yeah. So I think it'll be really interesting, too, to see, you know, coming out of Avengers 2, whether we... It, 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 I feel like if we don't get any more standalone Iron Man films after this, I feel like this was a great way to cap the this the franchise off you know we've got oh oh certainly like we've got we've gotten the character arc that we really need out of tony stark whether we get more i wouldn't be unhappy to see another iron man film but i feel like um you know we've we've got the you know from the beginning of iron man one to the end of iron man three we've got the we've got the arc it's cool it it could be a trilogy on its own
1: the the ending to iron man three is a great conclusion to Mm -hmm. to the evolution of tony stark's character
0: yeah i agree i agree um
1: the only thing is like they they're obviously going to do avengers too
0: yeah so he's definitely going to be back in there and I, i know he's actually signed on for that like he's contractually obligated yeah yeah So Amazon is looking to get into the original content game, same way that Netflix is and, you know, Hulu is to some extent and all these other players are are trying to get in here. And they've uh, they've made eight pilots, and they've kind of put them out there for people to watch and... um, I guess, like comment on and like review, I don't really know what the end game is. can you vote yeah. on them somehow?
1: yeah, like they have the thing at the end of all of them like I, I never really pay attention to, but it's like you know voice your opinion, whatever blah blah
0: blah uh, yes yes, yes, so I mean, I think this is really fascinating, I think it's kind of a exciting or interesting idea. I think it's also probably a bad idea um because the thing about pilots is that pilots are bad, yeah you know? like m- first of all, like most pilots. Normal people don't ever see because they're bad and they don't get made um, into actual TV shows. And then even for most TV shows, like with a couple of rare exceptions, like the pilot is not the best episode of the show. It's like the weird episode at the beginning where they haven't really figured out how to write the, to the characters. There, and maybe like there, a year and a half there, went by. There are by. two
1: situations, I think. Mm-hmm. It's either, yeah, the, the character, like the, the writers and the actors don't know exactly what they want their characters to do or Mm -hmm. how to act and feel Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and then they have to kind of you know feel their way into a comfortable groove yeah either that or um like the writers know exactly how they want the pilot to go Mm -hmm. and then they get that done and it looks good and then the rest of the season is kind of like uh we we have to write something for this every week
0: (laughs) i I would i would say that walking dead is that way where the walking dead pilot is amazing and then you know I, i'm not even sure that this series has maybe ever climbed back up to that peak
1: oh yeah the fir- the first season especially was like how do we feel this week rick has to run into town and <laughs> fight zombies and then make it back to camp
0: <laughs> and i think also studio 60 uh had a much you know studio 60 had like one of the most talked about pilots of all time um but then, obviously, did not materialize into an actual good television show. Um, right. So, but you know, so, so I think it's it's I think it's ballsy of them to put this out there. I think it's an interesting experiment in crowdsourcing. I think it's actually probably a bad idea, as evidenced by the fact that m- most of these pilots are really terrible. So I watched. We watched four of them, the Amazon pilots. Although uh, two, I only watched half of. I'll freely admit. Um, oh, really? We watch Alpha Dogs, which is uh, kind of John Goodman um, doing. You know, kind of a he's, he plays a Republican senator who shares a house with three other Republican senators. Um, it's kind of like a political comedy, I guess. Yeah, um, they're all comedies, yeah. right now. We watch Zombieland, of course, based on the uh, popular movie from a couple years back. We watched uh Dark Minions, which is a claymation stop motion animation uh show that about uh kind of some henchmen, sci-fi. like sci fi henchmen. Like, they they they're like the grunt workers on a ship, but then they accidentally get uh kind of roped into doing like kind of adventurer work. Um, and then I think I actually maybe I, did I watch the wrong one. We watched the one with Christian Shaw, right? The super Su- supernatural? Supernatural, yeah. That's yeah. the one I turned off, <laughs> and I only managed to get through I think twenty, uh, like fifteen of the twenty minutes of of Dark Minions. Um, and I would say that the least terrible one that we watched was Alpha House, which I would, I would agree. I would probably consider watching like more um, Alpha House episodes if they decide to make them. But I thought Supernatural was painful. I couldn't finish. I couldn't finish the show. I like turned it off.
1: Um, I am. I was also really disappointed with Supernatural because. And I think because I had my, my uh, standards set higher just because other people were like, this is one of the better Amazon pilots. I'm like, okay. 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 And I went into it. I'm like, no, this is actually really bad.
0: <laughs> I did not like it. I did not like it either. Uh, you know, I liked Dark Minions. I would, uh, like you, I would have preferred if they would have put more of it into actual, um, you know, uh, animation instead of just being I essentially feel like- sketched storyboards.
1: I feel like if you're going to do this you you can't half ass
0: it. Yeah. Yeah. Um
1: like if you want if you want people to be like, "Oh, this is this could be a really good show." Like it needs to have full backing.
0: Mhm. Mhm. Uh, yeah, and, and I don't I don't understand what that. Maybe maybe if you were pitching it to a studio executive, you don't have the budget to actually create a full stop motion animation 20 minutes, you know? Like you just don't have the budget. But this is freaking amazon like <laughs> they have so much money how could they not how they hired they not? john goodman for a pilot i know how could they not authorize these guys to like finish up their claymation i just I, i don't really understand like what the what the thinking was there it seems pretty strange to me um and then Zombieland, which is the one that's coming with you know the most name recognition, uh, obviously I thought that Zombieland land was going to be good for about five minutes. I thought that that first scene, um, there's a first scene in which this kind of very clueless guy kind of prattles on about all the shitty stuff that's happening in his life. That's, you know, v- you know, petty yeah. and, 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 uh, and inconsequential, like someone took his drink at from Starbucks instead of him or, you know, no one can ever forget how to pronounce his name while in the background. Uh, People are getting People like are getting eaten apart. by zombies. It was it's a funny visual joke. I thought it worked pretty well, but then the rest of the pilot is just painfully bad.
1: Um, yeah. Yeah. There, there, there are certain concepts which I think would have been great for the T V series to conti- continue from the film, like uh Zombie Kill of the Week. Mm-hmm. Or even the, like the rules for survival.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But and then you um, add a few new rules, right? No, like they, uh, they mentioned cardio a couple times but i feel like yeah. there's a couple new ones too
1: but, i mean so those those would have been like nice touches if they wanted to make a show in this universe mm-hmm. which would have kept viewers like sort of grounded to the the idea but like the character like trying to make the same characters with these actors was
0: yeah well in, in the, the it's like it's like a like a porn parody version. You they felt like they were form.
1: trying to be...
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and it, it, they didn't even really look the same, especially the Woody Harrelson, like a Tallahassee, you know? Yeah, um, it, it,
1: it really just didn't work.
0: Didn't work. I thought the Emma Stone uh, sub the substitute was actually pretty good and likable and could, you know, be a supporting character in a TV series that's better. Um
1: but she didn't seem like the she didn't seem like the Emma Stone character from the movie
0: at all. No, no. They didn't retain much of their actual characters. And I don't really understand why they didn't just uh go with different characters from the same universe. Like it's you know, there's no reason you have to pick those four. They didn't refer back to anything from the movie that was important, you know? Like there was no they didn't talk about they only briefly mentioned the Twinkie thing and they didn't really discuss the events of the movie so there's no real reason for it to be f- those four people um but i think the Zombieland uh, failure is actually kind of indicative of a bigger failure with all of these shows is that they all seem to me like they're like focus tested um versions of other better things you know what i mean so like they all seem to have a direct a direct more popular analog that Amazon is pretty blatantly trying to rip off. So, like, Alpha House is very much like a Veep, which is a similarly kind of sardonic comedy set in political Washington. Supernatural is a lot like Archer, in that it's about, like, foul-mouthed, you know, adventuring cartoon characters. It even has kind of a similar visual style. Zombieland, obviously, based on a film. I don't know what Dark Minions analog is necessarily. Maybe, like, Robot Chicken or something. Um looking at the other ones here those who can't looks a lot like workaholics to me um betas maybe they're just trying to pick out piggyback off the whole social network uh zuckerberg thing um browsers which is a like a bunch of music interns and it's like a musical somehow like they sing i think about their work or something um yeah, seems the, very like much like Smash or The Voice or one of these other shows, or Glee. I guess they all seem like they all seem like like cheaper knockoffs of more popular things, in a place where Amazon really could have used something kind of bold and new and original, and like splashy, which I think Netflix yeah. did pretty well.
1: Um, I I wonder how long Alpha House, uh was in concept because now that i mean you're right that it, it is a lot like v but now that especially house of cards is out like mm-hmm. how much tv do people want to watch about what goes on in washington. in washington
0: well and there's a couple other shows too there's like you know good wife isn't good wife about uh a political
1: oh is that? i have no idea what it is about and maybe it's, a, just, maybe just, it's a I...
0: legal you know, it's just legal drama uh, for some reason i thought it was i thought it was like the wife of a politician who had like a sex scandal but maybe it's not actually about politics Um, I've never seen the show but yeah you know I think that's an open question and Alpha House seems so much like Veep in terms of tone and everything that it almost seems like it's another show in the same universe like I would not be surprised to see uh, Julia Louis-Dreyfus's characters in Alpha House or vice versa but you know if it's so similar that it seems like it could be the same show like, but, like, why but, watch both? Yeah, but Alpha House is just not as funny. Like, is, like Veep is a really funny show, and Alpha House was a mildly amusing show.
1: How many do you think will get picked
0: up? Um, I don't know. Maybe they're just going to take the ones with the best, you know, like, poll results or the best, uh, what do you call them, like, uh, ratings and stuff like that and just go with them. But, um. Know, Zombieland has surprisingly good ratings. Alpha D- House has pretty good ratings. Um, you know, actually, just in terms of number of stars, they all have pretty good ratings, except for browsers, which apparently nobody wants to see people sing. <laughs> um, I don't know if they've said how many they're going to pick up or if they're going to pick up any of them. Um, I hope they pick up Alpha House. It seems like the one they put the most money into up front. And, uh... I feel like it's the one that I would be most interested in in watching more episodes of.
1: One day they'll tell a story
0: and some will say it was just a fairy tale about a human who came from the stars and changed our world. Okay, so should we talk about uh, Planet of the Apes, which is our sci-fi or our time travel movie of the week? Yes. Okay, so you and I, so our good listeners did not have to, or at least did not have to again, watched both the 1968 original version of Planet of the Apes and the 2001 remake with uh, Marky Mark himself, Mr. Mark Wahlberg, looking so young. He really does, yeah. baby face young. Like, it was shocking how much different he looked than what I thought that uh, he was going to look like. Um...
1: And actually, what was the last thing I saw Mark Wahlberg in...
0: I just saw him like, something really recently.
1: I feel like I did too.
0: Oh, obviously I saw him really recently because he was in Pain and Gain.
1: Oh, uh, I did not see Pain and Gain. But it was
0: I, interesting. Oh, no, I saw Ted. Okay. <laughs> Pain and Gain was very interesting. I don't really know that I would recommend it to anyone, but I'm very glad that I saw it, if that makes any sense. Um, anyway, so we watched these films so that you wouldn't have to, and... I'll say this. I was surprised at how much better the 1968 one was than I expected, and I was shocked at how bad the 2001 version was. Like, it, I I had seen that movie when I was a kid, and I remember, you know, at least somewhat enjoying it. Um, it it wasn't one of my favorite movies or anything, but I didn't, like, storm out of the theater. But, like, I thought the 2001 version, the Tim Burton remake with Mark Wahlberg and Tim Roth and Michael Clark Duncan was, like, bafflingly bad. But I kind of liked the original in a way that I was not super expecting to, which I had never seen that one before.
1: I hadn't seen the original before this, but I, I had seen the remake, and I knew it was bad. I didn't realize that, like, how how, how loose, really, mm-hmm. Um the the remake was compared to the original like they stripped away
0: a lot of stuff
1: a lot like so much of the the underlying themes and tone of Mm -hmm. of the original that it like like why why make it why make this movie
0: yeah i mean there are some things about the original that i that i really liked and i guess i'll kind of go through them like briefly one of the things i really liked is that this is actually probably the most realistic depiction of time travel we're gonna see um it's the only kind of time travel that we actually know is possible well, yeah time the dilation whole, because you approach the speed of light is like
1: minus know, the fact that they're traveling at the speed of light well
0: yes yes i mean we don't know how to travel at the speed of light but we do think but, that if we could travel at the speed of light we could go you know we we know what theoretically what would happen um so I kind of liked that it had that kind of, you know, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a, a, a genius plot. Like the setup is not like the most brilliant science fiction creation ever made, but it makes a sort of logical sense in world. Like, you know, astronauts leave Earth on a spaceship. They travel near the speed of light for a while. A lot of time passes on Earth while they're gone. While they're gone, there's a nuclear war that kills most humans. And into that kind of, you know, Uh, gap in the evolutionary um, you know chain steps these apes who then develop a rudimentary sort of uh, culture and and stuff that maybe up to like maybe I don't know 1700s 1800s America or I mean you know the world I guess Um, well they've got armor and horses and stuff like that but they don't have you know guns or nuclear weapons themselves. No they had guns. Oh they did have guns you're right they had guns.
1: Which I, which was weird, I thought, just because like they understood gunpowder, but they didn't understand paper airplanes.
0: Yeah, I thought that was a little bit ridiculous also. There's all kinds of weirdnesses about the film that are mostly attributable to its time, I think. Like, the Charlton Heston character, Taylor, he's just an asshole. He's just yeah. a raging asshole. He's a, he, a horrible human being. Um, he's
1: so mean to... Everybody. That, well, yeah. I, but specifically, <laughs> like, the that, that other guy on the crew, where he's just like, Why are you here? Oh, yeah, because you're so, yeah, you know, you're so good that you couldn't turn this job down. Blah 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 blah.
0: They also act really bafflingly a lot when they first arrive. Like they, you know, they find this pool of water and they're just like so overjoyed, I guess, that they all just strip naked and go swimming. And then, well, I
1: think I think that was because they were supposed to have been going through that desert for days. Yeah,
0: probably. Oh, yeah, maybe right, maybe right. But um, but
1: I don't understand like. So, like, they were on, like, a space exploration mission, right? Mm-hmm. Like, because c- they think they land on a, a different An, planet. A different planet, yeah. Which is what their goal was, right?
0: Yeah, so I'm not exactly sure... Why did they end up back wh- on ...how Earth? they circled around back to Earth. I mean, you know, the only thing I can think is that maybe they, you know, there was, like, a computer malfunction or something, or they... Maybe they got a message from Earth that said, like, you know, come back because shit's fucked up, but I'm not really sure what the what the thinking was supposed to be there. I think they probably didn't want to provide an in-world explanation because it would have ruined the famous twist at the end of the film.
1: Yeah, that's true.
0: Yeah. Um, Which, the twist works pretty well. I mean, you know, obviously everybody in the world knows the twist. Like, it's like one of the most iconic moments in film history. You know, Charlton Heston collapsing on the beach, looking at the Statue of Liberty buried in the sand and screaming his head off and pounding the ground, you know. And the fact the fact that they were on Earth the whole time and none of them realized it is actually kind of, a, it, it's it's a facet of the way they quite cleverly played on science fiction films of the time. You know, now I think from a modern perspective, we look at this film and we're like, all right, so you end up back on a world with that looks like Earth um, with a bunch of apes who all speak English and a bunch of people. Like, how do you not see that this is the planet Earth? But... At that point, in science fiction films of the 50s and 60s, it was quite common for astronauts to get into ships and go to another planet really far away and find somebody who looked exactly like a human being speaking English. Like, it happened on Star Trek <laughs> all the time. It happened in Forbidden Planet. It happened in, uh, you know, The Man from Outer Space. Like, it was, like, quite a common occurrence to have happened in science fiction films. So I have a feeling that audiences of the time were just kind of like, Oh, I get it. You know, we're we're on an alien planet, you know, and then there's these apes and they're speaking English. Like, I don't think it was really, I, I'm, I, I feel like audiences of the time must've been really quite shocked. Yeah. Yeah. Um, obviously I knew about the twist before I went in, but you're right that this movie has all kinds of other things to say. Uh, some of which are quite horrifying um that i did not know about there's a whole kind of lobotomy threat throughout and one of his fellow crew members gets lobotomized and turned into like kind of a walking zombie that i did not expect to have to movie. castrate him and yeah, they wanted to castrate him um they turned another one of the crew members into like a museum like a stuffed like a stuffed exhibit. Like, it was a surprisingly horrifying film in a way that I was not expecting. I even found those scarecrows that they find at the beginning kind of creepy and weird. Yeah, they were. And they looked like people who'd been, like, crucified or something. They reminded me of well, poor Theon, if nothing else. But, um yeah, you know, I mean... The, the older film it has a lot of things that films in its time just kind of had and that takes some getting used to but I think overall holds up pretty well. It's a
1: little it, I, I think it really does. I think yeah. there are a lot of scenes that just look gorgeous.
0: Yeah, they did look really good and and you know the these sweeping desert vistas or whatever uh, uh, you know um uh they do a really good job of kind of um They kind of lull you with the editing at the beginning, where there's like these just these three astronauts against these beautiful backdrops. And then, like, in one of them, there's like a person in the background. And, like, you know, if you were watching that in the theater, you'd be like, whoa, like, there's a person back there. Did you see that person back there? But it's like very brief. Like, they do a really good job uh, kind of introducing the aliens in in that kind of scene where they're wandering around in the desert. I liked it a lot.
1: Uh And I will say. Charlton hasn't had a really powerful voice,
0: yes, yeah, as much as the character was horrible, and as much as Charlton Heston is like not the world's greatest dude, you know, I think he's actually kind of more famous these days for his kind of political activism um and stuff like that but uh he he's very compelling in this movie, I guess you know he's mm-hmm. you you feel his emotion even if You know, he's frequently a horrible person to everyone around him. Um, So this movie holds up pretty well, I think. I can totally see why it was as influential as it was and as popular as it was. Um, And, um, you know, you see a lot of stuff when you're watching this film that you also see in sci-fi films later. Like, there's a lot in this movie that obviously had a big influence on... Um, uh, on films to follow. And I think it's interesting that this film in 2001, uh, A Space Odyssey, came out in the same year. They both came out in 68. Um, and in some ways, their like ship in the beginning, with its kind of like 60s-y, this is what a spaceship looks like, inside buttons and levers and stuff uh, like that, yeah. um, reminded me a lot of of the models in 2001. And 2001 is like the... Intellectual version of this film that doesn't give a shit about plot or story, um, and this film is like you know the the campy version. I think they're 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 interesting companions. I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, but the 2001 version is a different story. Like literally, it's a different story. But it well, yeah. But it takes else. it
1: takes away the whole concept of uh mankind destroying destroying themselves mm-hmm. being self-destructive mm-hmm. it takes away this whole notion of like uh uh theology and faith as science mm-hmm. with the whole doctor zayas character mhm um it kind of took away the the whole notion of uh identity through communication
0: mhm mhm and instead we get like basically nothing like, yeah, I don't... There's no, There's no unifying themes of this movie the way that those w- were quite cleverly woven into the original film. There's n- literally none of that here. Um, and, you know, I, the, the ending of this film makes no sense. Like, it literally makes no sense whatsoever. Right.
1: And, um, I mean... Go ahead. I believe Tim Burton said that it was set up just for something to be as a potential exploration point in a in a sequel which Mm -hmm. was on the table at the time Mm -hmm. but it you're right it it literally makes no sense and it kind of and the only way you can look at it it kind of defeats the whole purpose of everything he did in the
0: movie (laughs) yeah but like you can't even figure out like how what happened was supposed to have happened like you can't there's no logical plot that you can kind of you know, put together and connect in some tenuous way to figure out how it is. Like no figuring this ending out. It's just is and is and, and because like,
1: Well, cause clearly the computer shows that he crashes on earth at the mm-hmm. end. Mm-hmm. So there was no indication whatsoever that they were ever on earth.
0: Yeah. In the whole movie. Yeah.
1: So why are, why is like Thane still there?
0: I can kind of understand the impulse because how do you remake a movie? Uh, how do you remake a movie that has the most famous twist ending of all time? Like, like it would be like somebody trying to make a remake of The Sixth Sense, you know, and, like, n- you know, not having everybody just go into this movie being like, well, we know how it ends, right? He sees dead people. Like, you know, like, I, 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 I can understand the impulse to change it or to kind of, like, have a double twist at the end where, like, not only was it maybe, you know, here's what you were expecting, but, like, here's what actually happened. But it just doesn't work. It just doesn't make any sense. And I feel like that flaw informs, like, that their desire to change that aspect of the story undoes any of the other lessons that the first Planet of the Apes movie was trying to teach. Mm -hmm. Like, it's, the weirdly enough, the failure of the ending is what unwinds the whole movie and makes the whole thing just a giant joke and not... You know, an actual, you know, cohesive story with anything important to say.
1: Right. It. Yeah. It. It feels like a waste of time. Yeah,
0: it really does. In fact, I actually, when I was watching this movie, there's a really long battle scene at the end between the apes and the uh, humans, and I actually fast-forwarded it. I watched it like full <laughs> speed until I s- could until um, you know Pericles comes down in his little pod or whatever. Um and I thought that was a that was an interesting moment that could have had some weight, you know in the same way that both Taylor and I guess Leo in the new movie had to grapple with well, not so much Leo, I guess because the humans in this planet of the Apes movie seem to be totally intelligent, normal. yeah they are people, yeah, which... but you know in the first movie, Taylor had to kind of grapple with the fact that he. It, that what he thinks of as being human beings are actually not intelligent creatures anymore. Yeah, um,
1: I, I I will say like, um, in the in the nineteen sixty eight version, I didn't really there was really no point to Nova. I thought
0: no, there, it would just it just probably needed to be like a uh, love interest, I guess.
1: Yeah, you want it, You want something that looks good on the screen?
0: Exactly, but she's pretty. She's pretty useless. Like she doesn't really do anything. The whole movie that is important. Um, Yeah, I think that's. I think that's definitely true. Um, But like in the new movie, there's this creepy romance between Helena Bonham Carter and and Mark Wahlberg. Like I mean, yeah. yeah.
1: I mean, it's really only one way.
0: Yeah, yeah. Maybe you're right. But well, like that's I, just because that's just because Leo has no personality in this movie whatsoever. Like, eh, you're probably right. He he doesn't really. I feel like he, he he never registers. Like
1: there there's no yeah. A lot no of character. the
0: a lot of the first movie was Charlton Heston's character like trying to you know. Figure out the uh, how to live in this world where everything seems to be turned on its head. But for some reason, this movie Leo does not seem to have that problem. He just kind of like accepts everything is. Yeah,
1: that, that was that was really weird.
0: <laughs> like, it's just like, oh, I guess uh, we're on a any planet now where apes are like humans and humans are like apes. Uh, okay, cool. Let's just roll with like, it. <laughs> I, I, I'm
1: I just I'm just gonna leave. <laughs> like, I just find my ship and go. Okay, whatever. Bye.
0: Yeah, all the acting is really bad across the board. Um... Paul Giamatti's not very good. Michael Clark Duncan's not very good. Uh, Tim Roth is not very good. Tim Roth is actually probably the worst. Tim uh, Roth is
1: not great, but I kind of like Paul Giamatti.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess he's the one who makes the most of a character out of his ape self. Um,
1: like, that was, a, that was a nice addition, I think, to the movie.
0: Yeah. I did like, in this movie, how the apes actually moved like apes, whereas in the original, they were basically just human beings with ape masks on
1: i i was actually though pretty impressed with um how how the ape costumes looked in the 68 version
0: for some reason i was expecting them to look a lot worse
1: yeah i was was prepared for like real like b movie yeah Yeah. like you can see a zipper hanging out somewhere or something i don't know (laughs) but they look pretty good
0: yeah they did look pretty good um, I thought both movies underplayed the degree to which like a human being would have no chance in a fight at all against any kind of great ape, you know, like there is no, there is no situation in which a human being goes hand to hand with a gorilla or a chimpanzee and lasts more than a one blow. Like it, they, they were talking about animals that can kill you in one blow. Um, to all of those scenes where you know the chimpanzees are just wailing on one of the humans with you know punching them over and over and over again for like you know and then the human being just walks stands up and walks away i was like no 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 these these apes would knock you on your ass they would kill you with you know one swipe of their gigantic hands i was a little bit pissed i would have liked to see some realistic human to ape combat but it didn't happen Have you seen Rise of the Planet of the Apes, the newer movie with James Franco? No. I was looking at the Wikipedia page for the 2001 Planet of the Apes, and I guess when Rise of the Planet of the Apes came out, somebody interviewed Mark Wahlberg, being like, what do you think? Now, you know, you were in the Planet of the Apes reboot, and you didn't, uh, you know, you didn't get a chance to make another version of that film. Um... So like you know, are you are you angry now that they're kind of rebooting it with James Franco? And he's like, uh, I haven't seen the new movie yet, but I heard it was pretty damn good. Ours wasn't. It is what it is. Ours was a bad movie. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like even Mark Wahlberg realizes that like this is not a good movie. And he says they didn't have the script right. They had a release date before Tim had shot a foot of film. They're pushing him and pushing him in the wrong direction. And I think you've just got to let Tim do his thing, is what Wahlberg said to this interviewer. Um, which kind of makes sense. This movie does have the feeling of being quite uh, the product of corporate meddling. Although I am not a Tim Burton fan, even when he's given full freedom, so I probably would not like the movie in any case. But it
1: really, it really doesn't feel like a Tim Burton film.
0: No, it really doesn't. It doesn't look like his films. It doesn't feel like his films. Like it. There's
1: no Johnny Depp. Yeah. Can you (laughs) imagine if Johnny Depp had Mark Wahlberg's role?
0: (laughs) I'm just imagining it's Johnny Depp, but it's Johnny Depp as Jack Sparrow in my mind. (laughs) 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 (sighs) Yeah. Anyway, I'm glad we watched this movie because I really, really did enjoy the... Uh, original and I would actually really recommend it to people who are interested in knowing more about kind of the history of sci-fi and movies. Like if you were going to put together like a film list of movies that were the most influential in sci-fi, it would definitely be on it, which is why you and I are watching it. Um, Yeah. But at the same time, like the 2001 version, which is a giant piece of shit.
1: You can watch it just to appreciate the other movie even more (laughs) I guess so (sighs) I'm glad that it's out of the way though
0: (laughs) (laughs) it's the one I'm looking forward to the least I mean coming up we've got Diane Darko which I remember enjoying as a kid Uh, Primer after that which uh, I know that I already like Um, and our two mystery films which uh, I'm sure will both be awesome because our listeners lovingly suggested them um so I'm not really worried about anything coming up. I, th- I feel like uh, you know the worst is kind of behind us at this point. But yep, it's pretty rough. It's so rough that I fast forwarded through some. <laughs> 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 All right. Anything else on Planet of the Apes? Uh, no. I
1: guess that's it.
0: All right. Well, uh, for next time we've got Donnie Darko, which I'm really looking forward to actually because.
1: It's been a while since I revisited
0: that. It's been a long time since I've seen this movie and it was very important to me as a high school aged uh, kid. So I'm interested to see kind of how it holds up and and whether or not I still like it after so much time.
1: Oh, one last thing I wanted to mention about Planet of the Apes. Uh, When I was reading the Wikipedia article, I felt bad for like all of the actors were going to be cast in like much better roles but they couldn't because of their commitment to this
0: movie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, like which ones? I didn't hear about these.
1: Uh, let me let me look at it up, up again. Uh, give me a sec. So yeah, Mark Wahlberg was up for uh, Matt Damon's role in Ocean's Eleven,
0: <laughs> but he
1: had to drop out. Uh-huh. Um, Tim Roth was going to play Snape in Harry Potter.
0: Okay. <laughs> but well, i mean all of these are good i think you know i think uh Matt Damon and and, Allie and Rickman were both probably better in those roles than Tim Roth and Mark Wahlberg would have been I,
1: I agree but like i feel like uh the fact that they had to turn down the uh those roles just sucks for them yeah I do, it do really does um maybe those are the only two huh. you can either be in this like movie about a wizard kid And going to wizard school, or you could be this giant chimpanzee military commander.
0: It's like, Um, well, um, will I get to jump really fucking high? Yes. Oh I don't do it. But You're kind of right that that was a very early 90s phenomenon of, like, you know, an, an, uh, a live-action animal being the main character of a film.
1: Yeah. It's a weird concept.
0: I mean, it makes sense for children's films, but, like, Babe was not only a children's film.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, it was a, it was a family film.
0: It was nominated for Best Picture. And best director. Whoa. And best adapted screenplay. It's basically got the same trifecta that There Will Be Blood had. (laughs) (laughs) There Will Be Blood is the alternate name for babe before they lightened up the screen. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs)